You are listening to Talking Star Wars. Uh, I'm Alex. And I'm Connor. And today we are going to talk about Star Wars. We're going to talk about a, an interesting little subject within the Star Wars universe today. And that would be the role of the creature, the beast, the mysterious entity, non-sapient creature that appears in most Star Wars media, and the narrative role that is fulfilling. So why does a sci-fi space opera have so many weird creatures in it? Star Wars is chock full of creatures. Look at Chewbacca. He is a, a dog man who does not talk. He has language, though. He has thought. So we're not going to be looking into alien species like Wookiees or Ewoks. We're going to be taking a look at those more forces of nature that occur almost throughout every installment. We're not looking at the man versus man conflict where Chewbacca shooting someone as a Wookiee with his bowcaster. But we're looking at the quintessential example that we'll review in a minute would be Luke versus the Wampa in Empire Strikes Back, where mm-hmm. the Wampa just wants to eat. It is a force for Luke to overcome, and it is certainly also this alien creature adapted to its environment that Luke must fight. To answer your question about what are all these monsters doing in science fiction, when we touched on our genre episode of Star Wars as a Western, we introduced this idea, which has been floating around, uh, that Star Wars is this melting pot of different genres. And taking a look at each of these different monster encounters, it feels very much like fantasy, almost a Greek fantasy. You have uh, the Minotaur uh, that needs to be overcome. You have the Medusa. You have all these uh, beastly creatures that need to be overcome so that the hero can prove themselves within the narrative. And I think that's what these monsters serve as well. Yeah, and I believe it is drawing upon classical constructions of conflict in storytelling, mm-hmm. uh, where it is not man versus man. This is the man versus nature conflict type, mm-hmm. and it is used to vary the type of conflicts that heroes must overcome, because Star Wars also has plenty of person versus person and person versus themselves. Just look at Anakin Skywalker, who can't mm-hmm. help but be against himself his entire life. Uh, but the monster that exists not as a simple form of conflict and is often representative of a different type of conflict, whether it is nature or someone doesn't belong. But it is also fulfilling this role from going all the way back to Greek myth, where there is the unknowable and strange creature that must be defeated for the hero to show that they are able to survive in this strange land. So what what is that that first creature? In A New Hope, what's the first uh, alien beast that gives us a hint at things that are possibly a little bit showier to come? You see lots of different small aliens and creatures in A New Hope. And some people might be tempted to say um, the Tusken Raiders that capture Luke, but they are falling under the same category as Chewbacca. They are a people, they are sentient, despite being being treated as like barbarians, they are a society. Uh, So to look at the true first creature that appears in Star Wars media, that's suddenly like this emergence of this unknown beast that the heroes must overcome, we have to look at the trash compactor scene. We're talking about nature and uh, humanity's ability to overcome nature. And the trash compactor is, is, is a commercial byproduct of the Death Star. So to have this living 
worm-like creature, because that's all we see depending on the version of Star Wars that you watch. We see this little eyeball stick out of the, 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 the trash within the compactor once uh, Luke, Han, Leia, and Chewie all fall within. The eye sucks back down, and then uh, in a scene that I always found to be tense, we don't see what's happening to Luke, but we understand that he's being tentacled and then pulled underneath the trash. So what is the, the, the significance of having this this beast within the commercial Imperial Death Star? That part, the juxtaposition of this is probably the most efficient industrial dealer of death um, machine that exists in the Star Wars setting. It had, has blown up Alderaan at this point, and it's on its way to blow up Yavin 4. So there are... There is the scale of destruction and power that Death Star possesses is immense, but then it, even beside it, even within it, there is the existence of natural creatures um, that are, you know, flesh and blood, and they still have the ability to provide a threat. And I believe that is why it is a series of increasing obstacles in every scene that the heroes must overcome to escape the Death Star, even though. Uh, at the end, they are allowed to escape by target invader to track them back to the rebel base. Mm -hmm. But you, they have to fight their way out of the detention block. Then they go into the trash compactor. The creature attacks, um, and then the heroes are actually unable to defeat the creatures. It is the emergence of the industrial, you know, compact the trash from the trash compactor mm -hmm. that finally drives the creature away. And just on a side note, as I would be remiss for not mentioning it, there is a potentially non-canonical short story that was released in the short story collection from a certain point of view that gives a very tragic backstory to the trash compactor creature. Oh my god. Making it a force-sensitive, last-of-its-kind creature captured in an imperial research for an imperial research facility where it escapes and lives in the trash compactor. And then it was going to... It was only drawn to Luke because Luke could sense that Luke was Force-sensitive, but turns out Luke can't communicate via pheromones and touch like their creatures can, and so when it realizes that he's the savior of the galaxy, it goes and lets him go, and knows he'll destroy the Death Star and finally free her from her imprisonment in the trash compactor. So is this canon or legends? Um, it came out during the canon era, but the canonicity of the short stories in a certain point of view is dubious at best okay. it is by many different authors mm -hmm. and it's mostly sort of a anniversary celebration of fun but i wanted to bring up that point in case anyone else has read it to acknowledge that but that none of that is even hinted at in any particular way in the actual scene where it is a tentacle monster that attempts to devour luke please remind me to bring up the force sensitive droid in our next episode because it, it comes from a similar space of uh, dubious canonicity i think it's now part of legends but even when it was a part of legends it was still murky at best but ah uh, now i now I, I don't feel bad for this one-eyed tentacle monster but i almost did oh you do feel bad while reading the short story there's lots of beautiful descriptions of a different creature who knows about the force so that's was the interesting part of it but to go to the back to the narrative role of the creatures and this is our first creature that appears so yeah this is you know, it's we have this natural threat, we survive it, but then the industrial threat ends up being much greater. Mm -hmm. I believe would be sort of the the narrative and thematic uh, purpose that the trash compactor scene is fulfilling. So the heroes end up in the trash, and uh, they're in all this 
kind of organic waste, and it represents the universe where the universe poses potential danger, and then that organic danger disappears as soon as the industrial compacting begins. So you have the imperial squeeze happening on the universe, where even the, the frightening monsters are overcome by the industrial ones. So, you know, that's it's very poetic, in uh, as many things are in the first Star Wars film. Uh, I don't I don't think I celebrate Star Wars enough in this podcast. Uh, how many hours of content do we have of praising Star Wars? But um, as far as A New Hope goes, there's there aren't too many strange creatures that occur after that point because the the rebellion that we see is all human. Uh, the dog fight between them and the Empire at the end by the Death Star, everyone's human there. So. Moving to the next film with Empire Strikes Back, you mentioned the Wampa. Yes, so the greater prevalence of the creature in Star Wars really does begin with the Empire Strikes Back, as did many of the increasingly positive themes that might be present in Star Wars. A lot of it was introduced in the Empire Strikes Back. So the probably the first act, you know, antagonist that establishes some stakes and sets some character-defining moments for Luke is the Wampa. An apex predator on the planet of Hoth that exists in the ice uh, and snow, where it kills Luke's Tauntaun to devour and captures him. So, an illusion to fantasy if I've ever seen one, because it's uh, this creature bringing our hero back to a cave. Uh, it has the great suspense of um, having the hero await its doom, because Luke is put in a very vulnerable position. He's hanging upside down from his foot. Um, and the creature is consuming, or at least in my mind's eye, consuming this uh, Tauntaun, and we know that Luke is next. Yeah, I mean, the allusions to Odysseus in the Cave of the Cyclops are almost inescapable, mm -hmm. where it is a large creature that wants to devour him, it in fact starts eating his friend, his Tauntaun, and Luke has to employ his unique skills to escape. In the case of Odysseus, it was his cleverness and trickery. In the case of Luke, it is being forced to draw upon the Force. Yeah, he used telekinesis for the first time in the franchise. I, I brought it up in an uh, earlier look at our, our Force powers, uh, or an earlier look at Force powers, but it's, it's this greater danger that prompts Luke to use this greater skill that we have not seen before. Yeah, which is Classical way of forcing a hero to expand their skill set and show what they are capable of is to put them into a life or death situation. And by making it a brutal, you know, predatory creature, you don't feel that sympathetic for the Wampa when Luke cuts its arm off. Another Star Wars trope of uh, our hero cutting someone's arm off, which is more Monty Python inspired than anything. Perhaps. Yeah, it's just like it's like a greeting in Star Wars. It's like, <laughs> oh, we cut your arm off now. Next time I see you, you have a robot arm. You know. So yeah, the Wampa. I mean, it's almost yeah. It's it's the Cyclops in Odysseus's cave. It's you know, the it's not quite the Minotaur in the labyrinth yet, but it is. It's a way of introducing immediate stakes and situations to add complications, and then as in any good story and Empire Strikes Back is a great story. It continues to introduce complications for the heroes throughout, piling them on um, and showing them having to adapt and make decisions and change and grow to overcome them. There's a, a deleted scene in Empire where 
during the Empire's assault on Hoth, once uh, the stormtroopers infiltrate, the Wampa was supposed to make a return, uh, having burrowed through the caverns of, uh, is it Echo Base? Yes. Uh, uh, the Rebels' Echo Base, and we see the Wampa's arm take out some stormtroopers, but I don't think they had the effects done well, and also I think that would have limited the, the Wampa's effectiveness as an on-screen creature. It, it's with how little we see the Wampa in our imagination, we picture it as being so much more frightening. So the way they shot it is just incredible. And to include it more would be uh, to its detriment, like some famous bounty hunters. Yeah, I mean, if... creatures in Star Wars are at their best when they remain somewhat mysterious. Mm-hmm. When you're not seeing them and you don't see the whole herd of Wampas, you know that they probably exist, mm-hmm. but our heroes are never have not conquered the nature of this planet. They are existing beside it, and it is, remains mysterious and powerful in its own right, which is the point. And he survived an encounter with one Wampa. We do not need, as in another short story from The Empire Strikes Back, um, uh, Tales Collection, a short story from a certain point of view, where the Wampa gets a whole backstory. <laughs> yeah. But to continue on our survey of creatures... Um, the next creature we encounter is in The Empire Strikes Back, was the Exogorth, which otherwise known as the giant worm that Han Solo flies into and the uh, Millennium Falcon is nearly eaten by. Like, almost the mythology of the giant whale. Uh, I can't remember the uh, biblical passage, but is it Job who ended up inside of the uh, whale's stomach? Jonah. Jonah. Jonah ended up inside of the whale's stomach. We have this moment where our heroes are trying to escape the Empire, and so they flee to a nearby asteroid and uh, find safety in its cave. But it is no cave. Just like in our previous film, the Death Star is no moon. This cave is um, the throat of this uh, Exegorth? Yeah, and for anyone who has read other additional, more obscure EU short stories, there is a backstory again for the Exogorths as a species where they're, they're a silicon-based apex life form that exists on like a billion-year cycle of moving around and capturing sentient life. But we're going to look at how this exists narratively within the film of The Empire Strikes Back. And this is the giant space worm. That backstory exists to show why there was breathable atmosphere inside mm-hmm. of a space worm or why there was gravity. Um, unique properties of the Exogorth. Yeah, I feel like science can always be kind of hand-waved in Star Wars because it's not it's not a hard science fiction like a Star Trek. It is much more of a, a soft fantastical science fiction where if you're if you're thinking too hard about how uh hyperspace travel works, you're in it for the wrong reasons. Consistency is what we ask for. But, you know, a hard science fiction explanation of how an exogorth exists is certainly doesn't you know manage to survive a passing encounter with the square cube law but our heroes are trying to flee the dangerous empire and they're at every turn when they think that they have safety it turns out that they're just getting themselves into deeper trouble so they're trying to become safe in this asteroid they flew right into the belly of the beast Next, they try to go to Cloud City, where they believe it is safe with Han's former friend Lando, only to find out that 
they have flown into the belly of the beast, and Lando has made a deal with Darth Vader, and our heroes have yet again put themselves into danger. So it's a little bit of foreshadowing into how Han and Leia's arc will conclude in the film. Yeah, the lack of a safe haven is supposed to be tense throughout the whole of Empire Strikes Back mm -hmm. for Han and Leia and force them into increasingly desperate situations. In the space worm exists to fulfill that purpose to show not even in the middle of this blasted asteroid field are you going to find safety because a giant space worm will try to eat you. It's also a fantastic source of world building because now we know that this universe that we're living in is not just populated by interesting fantastical alien creatures on planets, but it's the universe itself is populated by these fantastical creatures, which we'll see again in future films and spinoffs. Um, this is not Han Solo's first encounter with an extraterrestrial unidentified flying worm type object yeah and he is not particularly phased by the existence of the exogorth um as we'll see when we talk about solo he's encountered even much much larger creatures before <laughs> so continuing our creature survey then we have return of the jedi mm -hmm. With the Sarlacc, we have Jabba the Hutt, who's a, a slug, but he is a sentient yeah, creature. Yeah, he's he's a he's an yeah. alien person, not an alien creature. Well, even before the um, the Sarlacc, we have the Rancor. Oh uh, yes, the so Jabba, you know, had his menagerie. So there's the Rancor, which is the battle in the gladiator pit mm -hmm. for the amusement of the crowd. Pull back to uh, ancient Roman gladiatorial battles, where you have the lion versus the the Spartan. Um, in this case. You can pull from fantasy as well. This is the Hydra. This is the uh, any number of obstacles that our hero has to face. This shows that, you know, while Luke struggled with a a worm on the Death Star a couple films ago, he is now overcoming this giant without even the, the use of his fabled uh, weapon, the lightsaber. But so when he comes into Jabba's palace and he's, you know, using the force to bypass the Gamorreans, he's choking some people, he's mind-tricking the um, Major Domo. Um, we get the sense of his power as a horse user, but this is, again, stripping away his tools, but showing he is still clever and brave enough to survive in that kind of situation. Nice. Yeah. yeah, so you, it is a deliberate test and display of all of the aspects of Luke's character, which is he needs all of those necessary traits that he displays to survive the confrontation with the Emperor later in the movie. The Sarlacc is an interesting use of a creature because it is both a creature and a location. The Sarlacc is like some kind of trap or like a guillotine. The Sarlacc does not have agency. It will lash out and try to consume anything that comes near it. Yeah, it's, it's almost, you know, Daniel and the Den of Lions, biblically, where the, there's this location which is also super dangerous and inhabited by non-human creatures, and... You must use a higher power to escape it. In this case, it is the force and friendship rather than um, the Judeo-Christian God. But there's littered throughout mythology and storytelling are these incredibly dangerous locations inhabited by creatures. And then Star Wars is like, but what if the location is the creature? Yeah. It has teeth and a digestive tract. Tortures and torments you. So it's a, it's a torture device and, and a place and a creature all in one. One diversion also, if in the book of Boba Fett, the Sarlacc can easily hold on to Boba Fett's ship, the Slave One, and keep it from flying off, how did it not immediately consume Lando when the same tentacle was wrapped around Lando's ankle? I, I think it's because Lando's a superhuman. Uh, I personally think it is because they had deliberately starved the Sarlacc, so it was not mm -hmm. that strong. Uh, but I think it's also 
you know, you can just view it as um, technology and depicting a tentacle monster had advanced significantly. So, well, as far as our, our monster survey goes, this um, Sarlacc is the last inclusion of a, a main uh, unintelligent alien beast. And we circle now to the prequel trilogy, where I think we'll have monsters used in a somewhat similarly mirrored way, but uh, when it comes to the Phantom Menace, I think about the, the big fish in the, the Nabooian ocean. Yeah, and there is, as we get into this, I believe there is a big difference between how creatures are depicted in the late 70s and early 80s as the original trilogy mm -hmm. and sort of as this fantastical Greek myth counterpart to our science fiction story. We get to the prequels, and they're less of a coming-of-age story and more of a political war thriller. Mm -hmm. And the creatures, I believe, start to be more of a direct representation of almost an environmental message, but also of um, exploitation of nature by um, in industry and the inevitable reaction of nature against that. There's always a bigger fish. So, as Connor was saying, the first example we see of, you know, a creature that forms a direct in-scene threat to our heroes in The Phantom Menace is the large shark-like creature that attempts to devour the bongo, the Gungan bongo, as they attempt to journey into Thebes, the capital of Naboo, um, through the great underwater tunnels beneath the crust of the planet. And each progressive... Uh fish that arrives consumes the prior fish there's always this this greater machine this greater force that can threaten you very much like the the worm in a new hope you have this this threat that is cropping up but it disappears once the larger threat of the trash compactor starts seizing in so we have this 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 analogy of uh, uh, every single threat that there is in the universe, there's always a more menacing threat to be aware of. Yeah, you take that to the movie as a whole. The initial threat appears to be the Trade Federation, but it turns out the bigger threat is Darth Maul. And it mm -hmm. turns out the bigger fish behind Darth Maul is Darth Sidious uh, and the Sith as a whole. So mm -hmm. it's, I think, a nice little parallel between there's always a bigger fish is a sort of an aphorism that Qui-Gon Jinn throws out that ends up holding true for the general thematic, you know, um, thrust of the Phantom Menace in general. Want to talk about pooping camels before we talk about Attack the Clones? Um, no, there's not really creatures per se when they're on Tatooine this time. All of the uh, antagonistic entities are sentient, such as mm -hmm. Sebulba. Um, yeah, so not really any you know, creatures that have this almost mythical level of th threat or antagonism or even spectacle that you would expect. The latter half of The Phantom Menace is taking place more in industrial urban areas, mm -hmm. so we don't get any more creatures that are in a man versus nature scene um, in The Phantom Menace. So then, we have to, so then we have to turn our attention to Attack of the Clones. There's really no creatures until we get to the end with the Geonosis gladiatorial battle. Anakin, Obi-Wan, and Padme have to face off against three pretty impressive CGI creatures for 2002. Yeah, there's the Nexu, which is the uh, cat-like creature that Padme has to fight. And then there is the 
large bull-like creature that goes after Anakin. And then there's the, you know, blade-armed, you know, spider-like creature that goes to attempt to kill Obi-Wan. I think that's an Ackley or Arkley? Ackley, right? yeah. yeah. I remember killing, a, I believe a, you killed some of these in Force Unleashed. Maybe the cat creature, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, and then the, some of them also appear in um, the original Star Wars Battlefront 2. Mm-hmm. Especially the Ackley when yeah. you're on Felucia. Very frightening the way it moves. Uh, but these very much have the same... Symbolism. ...in the Star Wars mythos as the Rancor does. They're the gladiatorial lions. They're the, the enemies that are kind of also enslaved by the, the Geonosians and pit against our heroes. So it's a, it's a spectacle. It is a... Uh, a battle for our heroes to prove their wits without the use of their lightsabers uh, before the Jedi arrive to help save the day. And then, much again to the bigger fish analogy, we have the uh, Jedi arrive, then we have the new droids arrive, and then we have the clones arrive. So there's always a larger force. The, yeah. Yeah, the creatures here, it's very classical gladiatorial. It's literally in a gladiatorial coliseum. And... The, the creatures are the threat, but really they're being made to fight the heroes by our greater villain. So this is a, folding again into that theme of the exploitation of nature um, for the benefit of the few, showing that, you know, these creatures have been removed from their habitat and forced to kill our creatures. And in fact, I think they show that by one of them, once Anakin breaks the chains of the bull-like creature, he's then able to ride it and it does not object. Does that creature show up again in The Mandalorian? Or someone similar? Um, I do not know. I have to look back. But, uh, you know, regardless, moving on from there with Revenge of the Sith, I, uh, I'm i struggling to come up with a creature outside of Obi-Wan's lizard bird mount. Yeah, and I think this is... Yeah, even though there's the battle on Kashyyyk where there's the Wookiees fighting, but our, our heroes are never really in danger from any particular creature. It wouldn't really fit narratively in this story because it is so personal and political. That's about the breakdown of a political system and then the personal failures. Like, you could have had a lava monster on Mustafar, <laughs> but that would have detracted from the dynamic between Obi-Wan and Anakin. Taken away from the, the drama there, yes. Yeah, so you certainly get, like, you see alien creatures, you see, like, the, the opera that is being performed by aliens in Coruscant. Alien jellyfish creatures. Yeah, it is the first Star Wars movie where there is not a scene where alien creature is providing a threat to our heroes. And that's probably because the primary threat to our heroes is one of our heroes in the story, mm-hmm. Anakin. So this is leans heavily into the both man or person versus person and persons versus themselves conflict. Join us next time when we cover the animals, creatures, and various monsters within the sequel trilogy and expanded universe media. Thank you so much for listening. We've been talking Star Wars. We'll see you sometime soon in a galaxy right here.